don't follow him, what are you doing? What do you mean you're going to go to church on Sunday morning? What are you doing reading your Bible? You know that stuff's not real. And constantly he is forever heckling us. And it gets even worse. Why do you love that person? Why would you stay with that person? Just give up. Why would you stay with that job, with that boss? And on and on and on it goes. And these are the kind of things that we hear in our minds. Well, this, the point is, Satan's going to do this publicly at times, out loud at times, so we hear it through the vehicles that are carrying the demonic world around, which would be the unsaved world. Now, I don't know if you've had these experiences or not, but our son Christian just told me of one that happened to him just the other day. He works at Chick-fil-A, and he was out in the drive through and he said that he had to call the police uh, on a lady who drives by somewhat regularly and shouts obscenities at the people working at the drive through Now, I don't know what they are, but I can imagine that Chick-fil-A has taken a stand in, in many ways, regardless of what you think about that, and uh, taken a stand for Christ in, in a lot of ways, and, and Satan doesn't like that. And so he uses people. And there are various times that that's happened. I've, many of you have been there with me. I remember there were times I was standing out in front of the abortion clinic over here on Hydraulic Road, and people will often drive by and show their universal sign of hatred as they drive by, or they'll shout out their windows uh, profanities and, and all kinds of hateful things. In fact, I've even had family members say things that hurt because I'm a pastor, not in a loving kind of a correction, but in ways to jab at me, uh, using my faith as a tool against me. But all of that, all of these things, and whatever scenario you can come up with, and I'm sure you have many stories, are uh, what the world does, really motivated by Satan in order to cause some form of persecution to us, to get us to stop following the Lord. The sad part is, and this is what we need to remember, that those people are blinded to the truth. They just don't see. And this is why the Lord would teach us that it's not the world that is our enemies. It's the spirit world that's our enemy. And we've got to keep it all in perspective, right? We've got to make sure that we don't look to people as the ones who are the problems in our lives. Now, they are the manifestation of the problem. But they're blind. That's why Jesus said on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The woman who drives by, the people driving by, it doesn't matter. They don't know what they're doing. They're blind. And so we've got to follow what the Lord has told us to do and understand those things. So he tells us in Ephesians 6, remember this, put on the full armor of God. We need this armor so that we're not penetrated by the enemy, so that you will, not, so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Here's the passage. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. And remember, too, that God has defeated Satan and his host of demons. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, he's a defeated enemy. And he knows that. And therefore the Lord says in Isaiah 54, 17, no weapon that is formed against you will prosper. Isn't that wonderful? 
And every tongue that accuses you in judgment you will condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. How would you like to have the Lord as your backup? I mean, that's pretty cool, isn't it? I mean, you've seen people have um, bodyguards. Can you imagine standing in the presence of somebody and having the Lord as your bodyguard? Well, guess what? He is. He is your bodyguard. He doesn't miss a trick. He knows exactly what's happening to you. I guess with all that said, what it really means is that when we find ourselves under these kinds of verbal attacks, since that's the one Jesus points out first, we have to remember that they're led by their flesh and they're just simply being tempted to serve the enemy and to follow who he says. But too often, I'm afraid, we try to fight back. We allow our flesh to get involved. We allow our feelings to get involved. And we come up with ways that we can to defend ourselves or our position. We take it personally. And Satan really has done his work when we follow into that uh, pattern. And we really start being, stop being effective for the Lord. And often what will happen, because we're in situations where we know persecution will come, we diffuse the situation, or at least try to diffuse what's happening so we don't look so bad or whether we may not or so we don't look so holy you've probably found yourself in that kind of situation before where somebody said oh so and so is a christian and immediately you kind of got a little defensive or you found yourself wanting to not make it such a big deal because you were afraid of what may have come and this is very common Uh, people will I'll tell you one of the big things that's happened in the world today. I'm going to give you several things that I think has caused or have been uh, things that have promoted this diffusing of the truth. One of them is you'll hear this word a lot, and it just really bothers me. Our younger culture, and I'm not blaming anybody, but it just seems to be typical of that. Uh, I hear the phrase of not being too preachy. I'll hear that a lot where people will say, well, we don't want to be too preachy. We don't want to be too preachy about this and that. Let's not be too preachy. I'm like, what does that mean? Well, what that means is, is that, you know, just kind of back off of Jesus a little bit. Don't make it such a hard message. Don't come across like there's a one way or the other way. Well, listen, folks, I mean, that's the Bible, right? We don't need to be afraid of being preachy. Here's the reality. People are dying and going to an eternal damnation. Now, when my eyes were open, I'm just speaking personally here, when my eyes were open, I'm awfully thankful somebody was preaching. I needed to hear the truth, right? But you see, we diffuse the truth by thinking that, oh, somebody's going to think negative of me if I become too preachy. Now, that's just one way that that happens. Let me give you some others. Often we'll compromise the truth, or people will compromise, compromise the truth. I don't know if you've seen the latest in the news with the Methodist Church. Here there is a great schism occurring, and rightfully so. Um, Some are now saying that they want LGBTQ clergy and really promoting that, uh, same-sex marriages to be performed in the church. And then there's the other group that wants to remain conservative. And so at the upcoming um, annual conference, there's going to be a decision made on the church splitting. 
And that looks like what's going to happen. And we're talking about the whole denomination. There's going to be a liberal branch and there's going to be a conservative branch. Well, you see, part of the liberal branch's problem is that they're afraid to offend anyone. And so they just compromise on the truth. And that just diffuses the truth. The whole idea is, is that we don't want anybody to have any bad feelings or thoughts towards us. And so we'll just diffuse the truth and make it smoother for everybody and everybody will join us. Well, that's not what the Lord says we're to do. We're to be preachers of the truth. I think a second way, and you have to think with me on this a little bit, and I'll try to explain some through illustrations, but one of the ways the church also does is by focusing on popular groups. And this is really an alarming thing. Um, I'm talking about using popularity or power or persuasion or people who are famous, maybe, um, people who have a lot of wisdom, um, as a means of making the gospel looking to look less threatening. People will often go this way. The thinking is, if the person could be the spokesperson for the church, then look at the number of people that will get saved. Now, God will certainly use all of that. I'm not arguing against that. And maybe that will happen. And it is exciting when popular or people who are well-known get saved. But the reality is our human flesh likes to gravitate towards people who are popular. In fact, I know people even right now that are struggling with this in ministry that they have a tendency to gather to themselves or focus on people who are well-known in the public eye. And they push aside others who were not so popular as if that's going to be something that's going to help the church. And uh, another example, and I think Jane sent me this this week, was a very alarming article again about the Methodist church where one young pastor, I think he's 32 years of age, said to his congregation that's in mostly in their 60s, um, a somewhat dying church, trying to figure out how to revitalize itself. Well, the denomination itself nationally or worldwide said, for any church restart, we're going to give $250,000 to that church. Well, that's pretty encouraging, pretty interesting to get that kind of money. And so the young pastor said to his growing older congregation, listen, we want you to stop coming here for two years and then you can reapply to come back. What we're really wanting to do is target the young people. And I thought how tragic that is and how sad that is. Now, I know the motivation behind it. The motivation behind it is we got to resurrect this thing. We got to get people in the doors because if we don't get people in the doors, we're going to fold. And that's a huge and great temptation to any preacher, I'll tell you that. But the reality is that's a compromise of the truth because the Lord has nothing like that in his mind. I've had many people tell me over the years, and I'm talking about pastors, who would say you got to target a certain group. You got to just target a certain group. Boy, guess what? I'm glad God didn't say that. God has said anyone who is searching me will find me, right? Age has nothing to do with it. So anyway, just a way of compromising the truth. And there are many others that I could give you. Some, even in our own denomination, at times I have become aware that there are uh, elevations of certain churches that appear to be the biggest and the best and the ones that are doing the most. And the quote-unquote, and I'm saying this in a loving way, and I don't mean to make this sound uh, 
too harsh, but it really is kind of made this made out to be this way, that those who are not as popular, those churches that are not showing as much, really don't get noticed. And I'm simply just saying that one of the ways we go about compromising the truth is doing just this. We focus on the popularity. But the reality is we are making attempts to gain some headway when God has said, that's not the life of my people. And I'm going to show you that from Scripture here in just a second. In fact, let's go ahead and do that. Paul says in Romans chapter 2, two verse 11, there is no partiality with God. Now, God is not talking about sin here. He's talking about people groups. Specifically, Paul was dealing with the subject of the Jews and the Greeks. And so he says there's no partiality here. And then Paul, even in Galatians, when he had been given a revelation by God, he went to Jerusalem to meet with the 12 apostles. Now, they were the big boys. They were the popular ones, okay? So follow this. And when he got there, some of the Jews tried to discredit him, saying, oh, you're not one of the 12. You're not really one of the ones God has truly chosen and spoken to, and we know that's not true. And they said that because popular, uh, excuse me, Paul wasn't popular. But notice what he said. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 6, as he was on his way or got to Jerusalem, he writes this, from those who were of high reputation, and he puts in parenthesis here, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. He's talking about the 12 apostles there. He's saying, even though they were in my presence and those were the ones I went to see, it didn't matter to me that God had called them to be the twelve. And he says here in verse 6, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. In other words, he's not making light of the twelve. He's simply saying to the Judaizers, look, don't elevate certain people above others because all you're doing is creating a popularity status in order to make the gospel look better so you'll look better and remove yourself from any kind of trouble. That's not the church of the living God. And it was Peter who even fell victim to the same thing. You remember it wasn't long, it was just before this where he became fearful of the Jews because he, Peter, had identified himself with the Gentiles and was eating meals with the Gentiles and some Jews came along and said, what are you doing that for? You shouldn't be with those people. And Peter kind of gave in to that. And Paul says he had to rebuke him to his face and say, that's wrong, Peter, to do that. Here's another way the church diffuses the truth is when it teaches a prosperity gospel. I won't go into that. You understand all about that. Meaning the more you give, the more God will give. Or the idea is if you come here to this church, then we're going to just... Uh, help you understand that God is really all about blessing you materially. And if he's not blessing you materially, there's something wrong with your heart. I don't mean the physical heart. There's something wrong with you spiritually. Well, that's not what the truth teaches. And here's another way. Through the uh, promoting certain gifts, the spiritual gifts. The charismatic church has been a, a, a real guilty of this, I think, over the years. The idea is that if you don't have certain gifts, then you probably are not really blessed as God as much as the other one, and on and on and on it goes. But listen to what Paul said about himself, the guy who was used the most in the New Testament as far as the writings go, 
13 letters written by Paul. Philippians 3, If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin. He's listing his credentials. A Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ." And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Going on in 1 Corinthians 2. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come to you with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the spirit and of power. Why, Paul? So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. What's he saying? He's saying, listen, you want my resume? Here it is. I mean, you should really honor me. If anybody should be lifted up in the church, it was Paul. But you know what he did? He elevated his sufferings. He elevated his servanthood. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 4, he referred to himself as a galley slave, or one who was the under rower in the belly of a ship. Now, Contextually, you have to understand that those guys were slaves, literally chained to the ship. They were fed menial meals, something that would just barely sustain them. And if the ship were in some kind of battle and they were attacked and there was a hole that came in the hull and the water started filling up the ship, they were left there to die, to drown. And Paul says, that's me. I'm that guy. I'm the one that the world wouldn't care anything about. But this is who I am because I'm a servant of Christ. My credentials have nothing to do with anything. What has something to do with something is the fact that my heart is given fully to Christ and I'll suffer for him if that's all that needs to be known about me. One commentator wrote this many, many years ago. He says, We live in a day when the church, more than ever before, is engaged in self-glorification and an attempt to gain worldly recognition that must be repulsive to God. When the church tries to use such things of the world to do the work of heaven, it only succeeds in hiding heaven from the world. And when the world is pleased with the church, we can be sure that God is not we can be equally sure that when we are pleasing to God, we will not be pleasing to the system of Satan. And that's what the world is, beloved. This world out here is just nothing more than the system of Satan. That's a good quote. And so our Lord's sermon from the mountain simply is, His people are humble who depend on Him for everything. 
And so not only is Jesus speaking of persecution here through verbal assaults, but look at the second thing here, and we'll go through these much quick, more quickly. He talks about physical suffering. Blessed or happy are the people, are you when people insult you, that's number one verbal, and persecute you. The idea behind persecution is to put to flight or to pursue. And so the inclination here is that it is a physical affliction. And that's certainly happened to many people over the years. We know the stories of Nero, who was the leader in Rome, Christians who were thrown to the lions. Uh, we've already mentioned the, those covered with tar and pitch and lighted on fire for the streets and for his parties. People who were covered in animal skins and fed to hungry dogs. People who were dismembered, burned at the stake, beheaded. And some of the most atrocious things that the human mind can come up with through the power of Satan to do harm to other people have been attempted. In fact, the writer of the Hebrews in chapter 11 says others were tortured, not accepting their release. Listen, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. Imagine that. I'll suffer through this because I know the resurrection, the real resurrection, the one to come to eternal life is far better so it's worth suffering through this. In verse 36, others experience mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. I love this. It's like the Spirit of God just pauses right here and says in parenthesis, men of whom the world was not Worthy. Wow. And that, doesn't that just stagger you? The Lord is saying, listen, you want to know who the most recognized people in the kingdom of heaven will be? These folks. It's these people. The ones who have suffered for me. The world is not worthy of these people. Boy, that's a switch, isn't it? From what the world thinks. They wandered in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. But all these having gained approval through their faith, not their accolades, not their credentials, but through their faith. They didn't receive what was promised because God had, providing something, had provided something better for us so that apart from them they would not be made perfect. I was reading some other things this morning and just reminding myself of, of the things that people have gone through. You remember, or maybe you've read about this, in the 1900s there was what was called the Boxer Rebellion in China. And that whole thing, if you know anything about history, was about certain, um, for lack of better words, peasant groups in parts of China or the northern part of China predominantly were upset because the Western world was coming in and having an influence on China, and they didn't like it. And so they trained themselves in the arts of physical attack to the point where they believed that if they were strong enough, they could even stop a bullet with their bodies. And they were the ones who would do what we now call shadow boxing. And so they became known as the Boxer Rebellion, but they were great persecutors of the church. In fact, there's a lot written on the History Channel website if you want to read about it. But this one thing tells a story of some Christians. It says, Insurgents captured a mission station, blocked all the gates but one, and in front of that one gate placed a cross flat on the ground. 
And then the word was passed to those inside that any who trampled the cross underfoot would be permitted their freedom in life, but that any refusing would be shot. Terribly frightened, the first seven students trampled the cross under their feet and were allowed to go free. But the eighth student, a young girl, refused to commit the sacrilegious act. Kneeling beside the cross in prayer for strength, she arose and moved carefully around the cross and went out to face the firing squad. Strengthened by her example, every one of the remaining 92 students followed her to the firing squad. It's reality. You want to read more about what people suffer through? There's the Voice of the Martyrs that was founded back in 1967 by a pastor who spent 14 years in a communist prison in Romania for his faith. There's a ministry called Open Doors that tells the story of a woman in India as she watched her sister be dragged off by Hindu nationalists, not knowing whether her sister was dead or alive. A man in North Korea prison camp is shaken after being beaten unconscious again and again and again. The story of a woman in Nigeria who's running for her life as she escaped from the Boko Haram who kidnapped her. She's pregnant. When she returns to her community, they're going to reject her. A group of children are laughing and talking as they come down to the church's sanctuary after eating together, and instantly many of them are killed in a bomb blast because it's Easter Sunday in Sri Lanka. In a January 17th article last January, Open Doors recorded this. That over, Listen to these numbers. Over 245 million Christians living in places where they experience high levels of persecution. 245 million. 4,305 Christians recorded as being killed for their faith. 1,847 churches and other Christian buildings attacked. 3,150 believers detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, or imprisoned. And those are just the headlines. You've heard the stories when Brother Al has been here with compassionate hope of the rape of young girls and the houses and the churches that have been burned because they're Christians, the beheading of their first martyr just a year or so ago, all because of one reason, because they love Jesus. That's their plight. That's the plan. In ancient Rome, crowds by the tens of thousands would gather in the Colosseum to watch the Christians who were torn apart by wild animals. Paul Rader, if you don't know that name, he was uh, many years ago the president of um, Moody Church or the pastor of Moody Church. He was an evangelist. He started other ministries. He commented on this and he said, I stood uncovered to the heavens above when he visited the landmark there in the Roman Colosseum. He says, where he sits for whom they gladly died and asked myself, would I, could I die for him tonight to get the gospel to the ends of the earth? Raider continued, I prayed most fervently in that Roman arena for the spirit of a martyr and for the working of the Holy Spirit in my heart as he worked in Paul's heart when he brought him on his handcuffed way to Rome. Those early Christians, quote, lived on the threshold of heaven within a heartbeat of home, no possessions, to hold them back. The Lord said that physical persecution would come, didn't he? He said it several times. In fact, in this same book, in Matthew 24, he says, they will deliver you to tribulation and kill you and you will be hated by all nations because of me. 
Mark records in the same subject in chapter 13, Be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. When they arrest you and hand you over, don't worry beforehand about what you're to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And then Luke records something very similar to that. Before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my sake. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to, defend, beforehand to defend yourself, for I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. But you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. And you will be hated by all because of my name, yet not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. Now, To be clear, the Lord is really speaking mostly about the time of the tribulation to come. But I think the principle is very clear there because we see this in our lives, that the Lord is preparing us for the understanding that these persecuting times are going to come, and they're going to come in this kind of way. And physical persecution comes in a lot of other ways too. I mean, people have, whether it's this kind of thing or losing their job because they're a Christian. There are many people across the world who, if they name the name Christian, can't get hired anywhere. They can't get a job or they'll lose promotions. You may have experienced that because you took a stand for the Lord. Not being invited to the company Christmas party. That's a form of physical persecution. I remember years ago I was asked to serve on a data processing management association um, board of directors. In one meeting, they decided that they wanted to, and this was when the lottery was hitting Virginia, they decided that they wanted to sell lottery tickets and wanted the board of directors to be the ones who kind of set the example for it. And I remember very clearly standing in that meeting among the others and saying, as a Christian, I just can't do that. It's against what I believe is right according to the word of the Lord. Well, it was a okay and pleasant conversation, but I was never asked to serve on the board again. And so these things are going to come, and we have to expect them to come. The reality is if they don't come, we need to challenge our own hearts and find out what's wrong. That's the reality of it is. And then finally, Jesus gives us this third one about false accusations. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. Now this has to do with insults that come from behind our backs people who are not willing to face our face. You know, it's hard enough to take something to your face, but when people come at you from behind your back, it's really much harder because you can't defend yourself and you can't clarify any damage to your reputation. Something was said just recently by a guy that we know. He said this statement, and it's really alarming because he's a very brilliant man. He said, all Christians are racist. I thought... Boy, he's not been to our church. What a staggering statement. All Christians are racist? Well, that's not the case here. But you see, that's an assault against God's people. 
I know personally, my wife and I, my family and I have had people say things behind our backs that we learn about that are hurtful and damaging. We have no way of defending ourselves. They say things about our children to others. And I'm talking about people from within the church. I'm not talking about the world. I'm talking about the assaults that come that way. I mean, again, it's one thing to deal with the assaults and the insults outside the church. But it's quite another thing to deal with it when it comes from within the church. James chapter 3, verse 6 says, The tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life as it is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. For crying out loud, Debbie and I have a rabbit at home that comes out and watches television with us at night. And he just flops on the ground and he doesn't have a care in the world for hours at a time while we're watching the ball game. Now he's a fan of the same sports we are and that helps. But it really is true. I mean, he's just a tame little guy. Now, if you come to try to see him, he's going to bite you because he doesn't know you because he bit me when he first met me several times. But listen, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. Listen to this. With it, we bless our Lord and Father and with it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Boy, what a clear statement. It just ought not be that way. And nonetheless, God is telling us when we're persecuted for following him, we should be encouraged. Let's get back to the point. In fact, Peter said we're honored in 1 Peter 3. Who is there to harm you if you're proven zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Now, Peter's using the word in a different way. He's saying you're honored. God actually honors his people who are persecuted for his name's sake. And notice the promise of this kind of treatment. Finally, in verse 12, rejoice. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, we look down the corridor of time and we're in good company. We're in good company. You know, we don't look for persecution. I don't look for persecution. And by the way, it wasn't that persecution was constant for Jesus. It wasn't. It wasn't constant for the disciples. We read about many of them, but it's not constant for us either. What we are to remember is that we're not to be afraid. We're to trust the Lord. In fact, Matthew 10, Jesus says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. We want to be afraid of somebody? Be afraid of the Lord. He has the ability to cast us away forever. And so we're to rejoice because we're safe with Christ. What a blessing. That's what our forefathers understood. The men and women that have gone before us, they understood this. Notice Jesus says, our reward will be great in heaven. I have to read this about John Chrysostom. 
Some of you all have read about him. He's a godly leader in the 4th century church. And he preached so strongly against sin that he offended, the story is, of an empress as well as many church officials. When, he, when summoned before the emperor, Chrysostom was threatened with banishment if he did not cease his uncompromising preaching. His response was, Sir, you cannot banish me, for the world is my father's house. Then I will slay you, the emperor said. Nay, but you cannot, for my life is hid with Christ in God, came the answer. Or your treasures will be confiscated, was the next threat. To which John replied, Sir, that cannot be either, for my treasures are in heaven, where none can break through and steal. Then I will drive you from man and you will have no friends left, was the final desperate warning. That you cannot do either, answered John, for I have a friend in heaven who has said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Chrysostom was indeed banished first to Armenia and then further away on the Black Sea to which he never arrived because he died on the way. But neither his banishment nor death disproved or diminished his claims. The things that he valued most highly, not even an emperor could take for him from him. And that's the way it is with us, right, beloved? I mean, we're of royal blood. We are of royalty. And many of you have been hearing about Prince Henry and uh, Prince Harry and Meghan giving up their titles. I thought about that and I thought, they can give up all the titles they want. But guess what? He's still royal blood, right? The blood of the king runs through his veins. And the simple reality is, beloved, is no matter what happens in your life or my life, what persecution comes, what may not come, what mistakes we make, what missing opportunities we have of Jesus and for Jesus, we are still royal blood. We're still a part of his family. And nobody's going to take that from us. 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellency, that means to tell something that's not known, of him who has called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. You know, Paul had to deal with a lot of challenging situations in his life. Beaten, left for dead, prisons, rods, lashings, all that in 2 Corinthians 11. But listen to what he said. A dear sister gave me this verse last Sunday after the message, and I thought it was just so profound. In 2 Corinthians 2, here's Paul's thoughts after looking at his own life. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? In other words, who's good enough? Who's competent? Listen, beloved, ask yourself the question, what possession am I holding on to so tightly in this world that I'm afraid to let go for Christ? What a beautiful truth the Lord has given to the people sitting on the mountain. Can you just see us sitting right there at the feet of the Lord right now? as he's sharing this final beatitude, listen, you're going to be persecuted, but boy, aren't you going to be happy. Keep your hearts focused. Keep your minds focused. Don't get distracted. Don't get lost in the things of this world. But keep following Jesus. Amen? All right, let's pray together.
Father, we thank you for the blessed truth of your word. As we started out this morning, we acknowledge that all truth comes from you. And we acknowledge you as our sovereign God. And Lord, there's not one of us in this room that is anxious for persecution in any form, whether it be through verbal assaults or some form of physical persecution or whatever it may be. Lord, none of us want that. And we pray that you'd help us to live our days out where that won't be the case. But we know, according to your word, that if we're living a holy life, we are going to experience some type of hatred to you. And so, Lord, give us the faith, please. Give us the fortitude. Give us the encouragement and the courage to look into your face like those that have gone before us. Lord, there have just been so many people that have been displayed in front of you by Satan as he ripped them open literally. But yet their faith was so strong. Lord, may we be a people that stand for your truth and not diffuse or compromise it in any way. Lord, we're living in a culture even in our own blessed country where the word of the Lord is just being so watered down and so systematically torn apart by the enemy, so dispersed as if it's the truth. But Lord, we're aware that only thy word is truth and we're to live all of it. Thank you, Lord, for the hearts that you've given your people. And may we go stand for righteousness with peaceful hearts, hearts that are not displaying ourselves but display only you. And we ask you to bring glory through, your, through us to yourself. And we pray this in Jesus' name, for his sake. Amen. Amen. Would everyone stand, please?
you and we praise you. We honor you, and as the song just led us through, we glorify you in all the earth. And Lord, dismiss us with your blessings, that we may be a light to this darkened world and rescue souls, Father, before it's too late. We pray now in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Lord, his blessings to you.